0: God, it's so good. So tasty. So
1: good and tasty?
2: This is EU Screams Election Bites. I'm James, a journalist who's crisscrossed Europe for 15 years now, covering politics and the economy. In this episode, a look at Yanis Varoufakis, the left wing economist who tried to stop austerity when he was Greek finance minister and failed. Varoufakis is back. He and his Democracy in Europe movement want to win seats in the European Parliament to save the continent from what they say are its twin enemies, the Brussels establishment on the one hand and far-right ultranationalists on the other. Varoufakis has found allies among a motley and enthusiastic crew. His supporters include cerebral musicians and artists like Brian Eno, philosophers and intellectuals who name-drop Heidegger at public events, and activists like Pamela Anderson, the former Playboy model and star of Baywatch. Critics say Varoufakis is boosting his profile at the expense of greater unity on the left just when it needs to be united against the far right. But Varoufakis says the only way to create a fair and sustainable future for Europe is to uproot the EU and then make it radically more democratic. Like him or loathe him, Varoufakis and his vision for Europe are worth a look ahead of elections where centrist parties are struggling to compete with the far right's clear and simple, if deceptive, messages. We talk about Varoufakis' record and his movement with Eleni Varvitsioti, the Greek journalist who has covered her country's crises in masterful detail for Greece's Sky TV and the newspaper Catamarini. Eleni Mu.
1: Hermes. How are you? I'm good, how are you?
2: Who Hermes?
1: You know that's your Greek nickname.
2: I love my Greek nickname. Are you ready?
1: 100%.
2: Are you listening carefully?
1: Very.
0: Authoritarianism of the Troika, which is brutish, which is nasty, and which is racist. We Look at that vicious establishment as the greatest enemy of Europe.
2: So, Lenny, that's Yanis Varoufakis speaking in Brussels on March the 25th at the Bozart Arts Centre. How do you feel after hearing those dulcet tones?
1: Oh, cold sweat and my heart racing, I think. It was uh, such an intense time when uh, Varoufakis was finance minister in 2015 and the the memories of sleepless nights and the anxiety that I and many Greeks felt at that time was uh, intense.
2: Indeed. Now, when Varoufakis is talking about the Troika, just a quick reminder what he's referring to there.
1: He's referring to the institutions, which are the European Central Bank, the European Commission, and the IMF. And they were the ones who were deciding if Greece is going to take an extra tranche of money alone.
2: Right. So they're like the representatives of the lenders, and they're the great evil for Varoufakis. Mm-hmm. Now, we were talking about how Varoufakis talks a lot. I don't know if you have memories yourself of what it was like interfacing with Yanis Varoufakis?
1: uh, What you described, I think, was pretty typical. I mean, uh, Yanis Varoufakis giving long lectures, and that was not only to us journalists, as you experienced, me and you, but he did that a lot inside the Eurogroup, and I don't think many finance ministers really enjoyed that.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, some finance ministers were like, oh, my God, now we have to deal with this again, right?
1: Yeah, it was a a famous interaction of two finance ministers that they were telling me afterwards that one says to the other, are you ready for another long lecture of how the the universe works? And the other one was like, yes, of course, I really enjoyed it. It's actually free. (laughs)
2: So but we can't name those finance ministers, right?
1: No. They never wanted their names out there.
2: I love the irony in his book which is called Adults in the Room, it's one of his many books. He praises these speaking times of only 3 minutes, 3 minute limits among those who were gathered in Syntagma Square in the middle of Athens during the occupation of the square, 3 minute speaking times. So un unfor- <laughs> so so unfortunate a certain someone. <laughs>
1: Who speaks really long, yeah, exactly. Doesn't observe,
2: (laughs) does not observe that rule. You know, again, that's another one of his trademarks, the haranguing style with ministers. And he also uses such kind of emotive language.
0: Every night before going to bed, Mr. Juncker and Mrs. Merkel and Mr. Macron should say a little prayer in the name of Matteo Salvini. And Matteo Salvini, every night before he goes to bed, he should tell a little prayer, prayer thanking Macron thanking Juncker, thanking the establishment. What you see there is an evil dance between partners, comrades in arms. To me, that sounds really populist.
1: It is, but it's brilliant at the same time because he used a very simple language and he differentiates from two sides. He puts them both in the extremes. I wouldn't say Juncker or Merkel is in, a, in one extreme and Salvini is on the other. But he places himself in between. So he says, since I'm between those two, of course I'm not populist. I'm the middle one. I'm, I'm the, the compromiser, let's say, which is completely untrue. <laughs>
2: Varoufakis has successfully turned himself into a kind of modern-day folk hero on the left for the way he tried to rip up Greece's deal with its creditors. He was stubborn about it and he failed. He was in office for how many months?
1: altogether? Seven, not even seven, from the end of January 2015 till 5th of July of 2015. So it's a pretty short period of time. So in
2: his book, he repeatedly describes his sort of epic martyrdom. There's a dedication in there to people who'd rather be crushed than compromised. He invokes Shakespeare, he invokes Greek tragedy, even George Orwell's 1984, as sort of the only way to understand his role. He writes, Europeans were not interested in an honorable deal with me. So you're writing a book about the Greek crisis with Victoria Dendrino, who's another amazing Greek journalist that we have here in Brussels. How much or how little of that book will be about Yanis Varoufakis?
1: We are focusing on the the months that Varoufakis was the finance minister. So he is part of it. But to tell you the truth, after investigating and talking to so many people, we've realized that he was not the decision maker and that was kind of striking that he was a side player in the end of the day he he took over in january end of january and from february di the head of the, the president of the eurogroup was contacting alexis Tsipras, the greek prime minister
2: and it was almost as if he was playing in a parallel universe
1: finance ministers describe him during the eurogroups as if the the 18, 18 finance ministers of the eurozone were playing basketball on one court and on on a Nearby court was Varfakis playing volleyball on his own. That there was no connection between them.
2: Wow, those are two very different sports.
1: Yeah, I mean, actually, are they? <laughs> they I, are, I right? think I think a,
2: ba- <laughs> I think a basketball play- I think a basketball player could kind of get involved in a volleyball. Okay,
1: game. let me say it again. Then with uh, soccer.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so is he seen as narcissistic in Greece itself?
1: When he first came to power and became a finance minister, he was like a rock star. People loved him. People thought that he was different, that he would bring a different deal. But as reality sinked in, and in the end, we got a much worse deal that we had on the table, then I think he lost his glory and his rock star appeal. That's for sure.
2: At Beaux-Arts, he was wearing a black shirt, gray jeans. It sort of makes him look like he's in mourning for democracy. At least that's kind of one message I take from that. But it, it... It also gives him more this kind of downtown hipster artist look rather than, you know, economist, finance minister.
1: Because he was so different with his attire and his attitude and stuff, people during these seven months were focusing on his looks and not what he was saying and what he wanted to achieve. So that was a wrong negotiating point when all the media are are commenting on your leather jacket or your uh, untucked shirt instead of what you were saying in your plea for debt relief. That was a big problem.
2: Right. So people were distracted in a way yeah. and they weren't actually analyzing what this guy could achieve.
1: Exactly. But he wanted that. That's why he would wear these clothes. I mean, otherwise, why, why would you want the attention on your attire, not what you were you are saying, actually.
2: Yeah, I mean, you've got the fate of how many people live in Greece? Ten million people. Ten more than million three. people, and people are talking about your leather jacket. Exactly. He also did this photo shoot right at the height of the crisis. What was that all about? I think it was for Perry Match.
1: He did a rather provocative, for Greeks at that time, photo shoot, where he's in a li- really lovely apartment with the view of the Parthenon having an amazing lunch with his wife, And at the time, he was saying that Greece was going through a humanitarian crisis. So the the image was clashing with his words and his rhetoric that you need to help us because we're going through a humanitarian crisis. I think he quickly regretted that interview and that photo shoot. He said that it was unfortunate.
2: Why do you think he did it?
1: I think he was swept by all this publicity. I mean, this man was an economist, not really famous for his publications on game theory. In a few weeks' time, actually, all the media from around the world want to interview him. They're following him every single step. I mean, I think you get carried away by this whole fame and, and glamour that the position at that moment brought to him.
2: I don't want to overlook Varoufakis on these points, among others, that the EU bailout was primarily done for German and French banks rather than for Greece, that there was a humanitarian crisis as a result of the Eurozone slash IMF imposed reforms, including a wave of suicides that really is beyond shameful in modern day Europe, and that austerity is a poor, if not patently idiotic economic policy during a downturn, let alone a sort of 1930 scale depression that Greece was going through.
1: I agree in some of your points. Definitely the first point that you made that the, the bailout was primarily done for German and French banks on the humanitarian point when he was raising that point with his Eurozone finance ministers they had issues with that because there were other Eurozone countries which were poorer than Greece and it was weird and it was uncomfortable actually for them to approve a raise in the pensions and the salaries when they could not afford that for their own countries and they had to bail out that country that was asking for that. So, it was kind of uncomfortable for them. And humanitarian crisis definitely we went through a very big recession, a huge recession in a very small period of time, but that does not mean that we were in a humanitarian crisis mode.
2: Be- because humanitarian does have a very specific it's definition. Be- yeah,
1: it's because of due to war, or famine or yes. natural disasters.
2: So, what exactly during those 7 months that Verafacus was in office, what was he kind of holding out against?
1: I think his main point, which was a valid point, was that Greece needed debt relief.
2: Reducing the overall size of the outstanding amount that Greece has to pay.
1: But the way he expressed it was wrong. As you know better than I do, problems in the EU are solved, economic problems are solved under political terms and not economic terms. And debt relief was very hard for a series of member states. Uh, He needed to show that he, he plays with the rules, but there was no real discussion on the reforms and what he needed to do in order to reach the debt relief.
2: But what he writes in Adults in the Room is that, quote, accusations such as you gambled with your country and lost, hold no water. He also writes that it was my basic tenet that as the finance minister of a bankrupt country, I had no right to gamble with its future, and I didn't.
1: When he took over, actually, things were looking up. I mean, the numbers, maybe people did not feel it in their pockets immediately, but the numbers were showing an improvement. It was not a bankrupt country. When he went to Mario Draghi the first time to meet him, Draghi told him, you cannot go around the world and giving statements that you are a finance minister of a bankrupt country. How are we going to fund you? How are we going to fund your your banks?
2: Did he lose Greece money?
1: Yeah. The calculations have that he lost uh, from 100 billion to 200 billion. Klaus Regling, the head of the European uh, Stability Mechanism, says 100 billion. And the calculations are that big because Greece had a prediction for growth in 2015. And in the end, for 2015 and 2016, we had recession. And that's a huge amount of money that's lost in the economy Everybody was waiting to see what will happen with the negotiation. So people did not pay their loans. People were taking their money frantically out of the banks because they were very scared that at the end, they're going to end up leaving the eurozone. And at the end of the day, when there was an agreement, the, the needs were very big for the Greek economy. Greece had to borrow 86 billion euros, didn't use all the amount, but it was 64 billion out of them were used. So You start with this amount of money. And second of all, what I just said before, the whole theory of Varoufakis and and the Greek government, I don't want to say Varoufakis because it was a Greek government behind it, was the theory of the chicken game. They are going to blink. The Europeans are going to blink. They're going to give us what we want because they're so scared that we will uh, destroy the Eurozone. And that could have been true in 2012 when the Eurozone was not prepared. There was no banking union. There was no all this firewall. There was no the European stability mechanism. But in 2015, everybody was protected. What is kind of weird is that in the UK, Varoufakis' book is doing great. It's one of the most read books in Brexit topics. And it's kind of weird if you think that the Brits are reading Varoufakis' book on how to negotiate with the Europeans when... This guy, as a finance minister, got the worst possible deal. He had a very bad negotiation.
2: Yeah, the results were expensive, as we just discussed. Mm
1: -hmm. And uh, also the uh, Harvard Law School nominated him as the worst negotiator for 2015 globally. (laughs) (laughs) Awarded him, actually.
2: Varoufakis has positioned himself as like the Bernie Sanders of Europe. He met with Bernie in Vermont last November to create what he called the Progressive International. Varoufakis had already developed the Democracy in Europe movement, or DM25. This movement is transnational in part because Varoufakis himself is standing for election to the European Parliament in an EU country, Germany, that's not his own, which is, of course, Greece. There aren't really European parties at the national level. For example, there is no special electoral district covering all the EU. But even what Varoufakis is doing is really not hugely new, in fact, since there are a handful of members of the parliament elected from countries that aren't their own already. And he's not alone, since many more such cross-border candidates are running from parties besides DM 25 in these elections May 23 to 26. Anyway, Varoufakis inaugurated DM 25 On the 9th of February, 2016, at a Berlin theater.
0: Guten Abend, Volksbunen. Guten Abend, Berlin. Guten Abend, Deutschland. Guten Abend, Europa. Guten Abend to all of you, hoping that something good is beginning here tonight. Yes, Europe will be democratized or it will disintegrate.
1: It's very Varoufakis of him. I mean, he went to Germany, the the country that he was accusing all these months about the austerity and about the misery that has created to the Greek people. And he's actually running in Berlin for the EU elections.
2: It's making a statement, right? It's almost like an art project.
1: Exactly. I think it's brilliant and it's completely his style.
2: It's not necessarily going to be politics that results in election.
1: No, it's provocative and makes people wonder why is he running in Germany? Why is he not running in Greece? What's going on? I mean, he creates a stir around his moves.
2: We also have these Greek general elections coming up. And is this like a test run for a return to Greek politics?
1: if i could judge now from from the way people react to his dm party and the rallies that he does in Athens and in Greece they don't seem to have such a momentum in greece the whole dm movement is not really catching fire
2: okay so let me try and explain dm 25's stance in a nutshell they want to form a constitutional assembly and rewrite the european union treaties by 2025 They want radical transparency, you know, not quite meetings in the nude, but pretty close from the point of view of officials and ministers. For example, live streaming of Eurogroup meetings. They want a European New Deal, including a lot of ideas about massive spending on a Green New Deal. And all of that echoes what's being called for among progressive Democrats in the U.S., And they want a far more relaxed approach to spending.
1: If you would live stream the Eurogroup meetings, then you know that there would be no decision. And the greatest decisions in Europe are taken in a small room with two people inside.
2: That's not necessarily a great thing.
1: No, I'm not saying. But in order to take the hard decisions, it's easier to have it in a small room when you don't have all the lights of the publicity on you.
2: So it's unrealistic. Yeah. Right. There are a lot of artists in the DM25 group. There's Bobby Gillespie of the band Jesus and Mary Chain, along with Slavoj Zizek, the Slovenian-born philosopher and psychoanalyst, Naomi Klein, the author and filmmaker. They're on the advisory panel. And then there's the friendship with Julian Assange, who a lot of journalists, including me and you, I would guess, have a lot of issues with, not least for the way Assange calls himself a journalist.
1: I mean, I appreciate what he did, bringing into light all these documents which were showing especially what the US was doing in the Iraq war, but he leaked them without filtering anything and putting uh, people's lives and careers in danger.
2: And one more thing, Varoufakis talks a lot about how by crushing his attempts to defy Greece's European lenders was the factor that produced a xenophobic, illiberal, anti-Europeanist, nationalist international, basically produced the xenophobia that we're seeing today. Now, I would say, okay... You know, the Eurozone crisis and austerity helped fuel Farage and Salvini and maybe to some degree the Gilets Jaunes, as Varoufakis says. But I would note that in Greece, the Golden Dawn, who are the truly frightening neo-Nazi party there, doesn't seem to be growing in strength in Greece right now. As far as I can see, they're on track to get two European Parliament seats, just like last time.
1: Yeah, you're right. That's what the polls show. Uh, but I would be a bit cautious because, you know, people are kind of hesitant to say, even in polls, that they are supporting neo-Nazi far-right party. So maybe there is some increase in their popularity, but it's it's not really seen. So we should be a bit cautious about how Golden Dawn is going to perform in the May elections. Uh, Golden Dawn, their main argument is anti-migration. And second of all is anti-bailout. So I think they were increase their power and popularity when we saw thousands of immigrants crossing Greek borders and being in Athens and main cities without having a job and without knowing what to do. And this created a lot of anxiety and fear to the Greeks. And that's when Golden Dawn found this great opportunity to say, we want to kick them out. They don't belong here. They should go back home.
2: Right. So the link with the financial crisis might be there, but it is not primary. No. Look, what I really do admire about DM 25 is that there is no migrant bashing. There's no attempt to show that Europe needs to be divided between North and South and East and West. And in fact, I wanted to talk to Varoufakis about all of this. And in particular, international trade in light of Brexit and Trump. I even got an interview with him set for uh, January 26. I flew out to Berlin and then I took a bus to a neighborhood called Marzahn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I walked in the freezing cold, like another kilometer to a kind of community center with beer, (laughs) where he had been holding a council with DM-25 people.
1: Sounds like an adventure. Did you finally talk to him?
2: It turns out he stood me up. Oh, no! (laughs) The press attaché who set up the meeting didn't even call me to say that Varoufakis had already left for Athens. The formal excuse when it came from other DM25 people was that Varifakis was taken ill. And to be honest, who knows? That's
1: not polite.
2: In the end, I talked to an Italian DM person, Lorenzo Marsili. That was interesting enough. Marzilli was generous with his time. I used some of what Marzilli told me in our Trade Storms episode on EU Scream. But then, then this American guy who'd been with Varifakis and Bernie Sanders in Vermont... Yeah, he got sick too and canceled on me. <laughs> <laughs> canceled on me as well. Not a very lucky trip. It was so very very viral among the DM25 party faithful in Berlin. I, I guess I just feel lucky to get out of there with like a mild head cold.
1: And so how do you feel about being stood up by Yannis?
2: Um, yeah, I was pretty peeved. <laughs> <laughs> but I've I've tried to keep a journalistic distance. And I try to keep getting a sense of what Verifacus is all about as a politician. Uh, you know, since we spent so much time with the guy uh, as reporters during the Greek crisis. So I, I swallowed my pride. And I bought tickets to the beaux in Brussels on March 25th to go see Yannis Pitch DM25 live.
1: Okay, you're really a glutton for punishment. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to say... He, he crafted his language about how he's sticking up for the hard hit and the downtrodden. And I, I really don't doubt his motives and his self-belief on that score. But the truth is that Varoufakis and his party are about as out of touch with common European people as one can possibly imagine – and from what I saw at that rally a few weeks ago, not even Pamela Anderson is <laughs> is going to be able to turn that around. You what? <laughs> yeah, 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 Pamela Anderson. Did you know that she was No. Yeah, she's super involved. She's the European Spring ambassador, which is linked to DM25. Pamela Anderson of Baywatch is their ambassador.
1: But what does Pamela have to do with Europe?
0: Great question. So we all bring some political capital to this struggle for civilization pamela brings hers welcome
2: thank you uh,
0: so pamela the floor is yours oh, is this it, it, works. it works
1: okay 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 yes i'm sure everyone's wondering what is she doing here i'm sure you'd prefer maybe george clooney or uh, uh, angelina jolie but they're busy making movies so I'm here. Uh, You know, I've I've been an activist for a very long time, and and this uh, DEEM25 really resonates with me, being an environmentalist and a a person that just cares about the planet, having two young boys, and wanting the world to be a better place, and knowing just a lot of really smart people. I've learned a lot and I know that, um, you know, I have a platform and I want to use it. I want to be brave. I want to be bold and not writing speeches. I don't really do that. I'm just speaking from the heart and more of us need to do that. And, and, and... I think she sounds very kind hearted. She has her legitimate causes about protecting the animals, the environment, and bringing people together.
2: And speaking out against Salvini,
1: which apparently she did in France. I agree 100%, but I don't think she's betting on the right horse for her causes. You say not betting on
2: the right horse. Well, in order to achieve these things... Varoufakis is proposing huge amounts of spending, huge amounts of financing from the European Investment Bank.
0: The European Investment Bank, which belongs to all Europeans, will be issuing, according to our policy, 500 billion euros of bonds every year for five years. That's two and a half trillion in five years during the duration of the next European Parliament. Those bonds will sell like hot cakes. Because
1: so he does have a spending plan, but I think that he he's relying on a creative reading of the European Investment Bank mandate, and he's really good in in this creative reading of treaties and of agreements and, uh, and of plans. But in reality, usually these things fall flat.
2: Even Varoufakis thinks the whole DM 25 effort is pretty quixotic. Mm. At, the, at, the, at the end of his book, The Adults in the Room, he admits that, quote, even some who sympathize with dm 25s pan Europeanism dismiss it as utopian, and then he goes on to write that our movement may be utopian, but hey, Eleni, l- let's do one last thing on Verifacus. Jarvis Cocker of the band <laughs> of the band Pulp wrote that line in Common People about Verifacus's now wife deny D- don't answer yet because we're going to sing it.
1: Oh my God. My worst fear. <laughs> she, she came, came from, from Greece. She had she a thirst for knowledge. She, she studied, studied culture at St. Martin's, Martin's College. College. That's, That's where I, I caught her
2: eye. eye. <laughs> she told, she me told me that her dad was loaded. Was loaded. I, said, I said, in, in that, that case, case I'll,
1: I'll have, have a, a Roman color.
2: Oh. She <laughs> said, fine.
1: <laughs> And in 30, 30 seconds, seconds time, she said, I want to live like common, common people. I want to
2: live like common, common people, people
1: do. <laughs> you did the rest of the lyrics. <laughs> all right. Common people like you.
2: It's, it's all about a wealthy Greek art school student at St. Martin's School of Art in London, which is where...
1: Then I went exactly
2: then I went as a student, so at least that much is true
1: definitely um,
2: and about how she was maybe slumming it. And more with Jarvis, please say it's true.
1: <laughs> As Danai said, only Jarvis will know for whom it was that song. <laughs> Hold on, she she's had a reaction to yeah, that? Yeah, she has, because there was a whole story about it. And then another Greek artist came out and said, no, it wasn't about night. it was about me. And that's when night said that only Jarvis knows the true answer.
2: Oh wow. Oh wow.
1: But I don't know if it's the wrong or urban myth. I mean, how can I know? <laughs> she went to St. Martin's, she studied sculpture, she had a loaded dad.
2: Yeah, but the last thing that EU Scream wants to do is disinformation about one of Brit Pop's finest <laughs> moments.
1: I don't and, know. and but we're
2: still in the dark.
1: We're still in the dark. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs>
2: You can check our website at euscream.com for links to topics discussed in the show and for more episodes. Thanks for listening.